Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And you're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist. A podcast for human Venn diagrams. Coming at you every single Monday. And hosted by us. Today we're talking with Janet Martinez, CEO of Lumia, a fashion tech company founded by Teal Fellow Maddie Maxi that makes fabric into circuit boards using proprietary conductive ink. They literally make wearables that are woven into the fabric. It is so cool. Janet is a native New Yorker who studied design technology at LaGuardia High School. That's the school that fame is based on, by the way. Janet has had such a fascinating path from working in technical theater at Lincoln Center to acting on Law & Order, no big deal, to teaching a painting class in the Caribbean, to now working at the intersection of fashion and technology. Yes, we talk about the virtue of scrappy resourcefulness, how to avoid imposter syndrome, and the best-kept secrets of New York City concierges. <laughs> Such a weird word. <laughs> I know. Uh, I we also discuss the Internet of Things, the power of setting up a process, and what Janet describes as an aura of weird. Yes, speaking of an aura of weird slash awesome, I am now dreaming up ways to upgrade some of my favorite articles of clothing with circuits and lights, like... My space jacket could take on a whole new life if it could light up with a constellation of stars. Am I right? Uh, absolutely. I'm just thinking of how useful this would have been for the sparkle tie wedding I went to over New Year's. Uh, I, for one, am very excited about the future of fashion tech. So let's just get to this episode. Let's do it. Noise you couldn't quite locate. Hello, Christina. Hey, Kate. Hi, Janet. Hey, ladies. Hi. I'm just a little distracted because I'm looking at these photos of the Chanel fashion show where a rocket launched. The Chanel show in Paris? The Chanel show Paris Fashion Week, I guess, is this week. 
That's right. It must be. And and a rocket launch? <laughs> yeah, okay, a I'm rocket. Okay, yeah, I mean, looking. like how do you compete with that? A rocket launch. Yeah, thanks to my thanks to my Instagram stories news source, I was just like looking through uh, some accounts and it was literally like people were putting a bunch of rocket emojis Wait, it up. like legit rose 33 feet into the air. 33 feet and then stopped somehow, nice. which is pretty to Which the tune of Rocket Man. Well done. Yes. Yes. Um, you know the I love sound guy had fun with that. <laughs> <laughs> this is my shining hour. Yeah, I love that. And Janet, of course, you would also be able to point that out from an audio perspective. Design. Yes. So the thing that is crazy about this picture, I'm looking at New York Mag right now. The show is at the Grand Palais. It's got a, a glass ceiling yes. and a shuttle uh, rocket thing is launching under the glass. It doesn't look like it, it broke. It the did glass not ceiling. break the glass ceiling. <laughs> Unfortunately, Unfortunately. Uh-huh. Uh, but it just makes me want to know how much they had to pay in extra insurance riders in case that did. <laughs> I think that they didn't mention it. I think it was a careful omission. Well, you know, it's going to be a projected rocket, not a real rocket. <laughs> because you know, if that broke the ceiling, not only would it be a fantastic, uh, you know, image, um, mm-hmm. but it would rain down glass on the audience that's and, right you know the models um so that would terrify me that's right it would be uh, like hailing shards of glass ceiling well yeah. i'm just impressed by the models who are very stoically standing yeah, they're very there. chill they're so chill and it must have been in their contract that there is the, there's like billows of smoke <laughs> non-responsive that, and, and flames very close to you uh Indeed. and just you know roll with it hold that pose looks like kendall jenner was in the show so lord oh. knows that she probably was able to negotiate her position against the rocket smoke. <laughs> I would Janet, think so. having come from a technical theater background, as you think about the production aspect of having a rocket with models <laughs> and live audience under a glass ceiling, what terrifies you the most if a, uh, a creative <laughs> director came to you and said, Janet, I've got an idea? Oh, my God. And that happens so often. You know, I've got an idea. You know, three weeks before the show, you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, definitely the fire in this. And when we talk about insurance, it makes me think someone somewhere had to know because, you know, they tested that a few times so that it didn't oh, yeah. hit the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the sparks catching fire, of course, uh, it going off course even a little bit. I mean, there's just so many variables that any normal person would be afraid of, of having a rocket launch in, in their home per se, mm-hmm. uh, let alone this fancy dancy place. <laughs> but I'm imagining that all of these uh, tech runs were done in the dead of night at around 3 or 4 a.m. where yeah. there'd be less eyes on the ground mm. yeah. uh, to keep it sufficiently secret uh, because I, think, I definitely do think that that's part of the angle as well. No one was expecting a rocket. So uh, definitely exciting. Definitely seems like the tech team had a fun time with that. <laughs> and good on them for not not getting in trouble. Yeah, I think Yeah, I, think I mean, it's so far as what I can tell, no one died, no one uh no one inhaled the smoke and the rocket I'm assuming at some point came back down. I, I just like the <laughs> the bar that this is setting for the fashion industry. It's like, you know, rocket now. What what's next? A show on the moon. It's, like, it's only a matter of time. Exact Mars. Show <laughs> on Mars. That's right. 2030. I love it. Well, Janet Let's just jump in to your connection to fashion and tech. We'd love to start by talking about Lumia, which is so fascinating. So you are the CEO of a fashion tech company that, according to your website, turns fabric into circuit boards, replacing rigid wires with flexible and soft fabric for textile-based wearables. Okay, you got to fill us in. How do you do that? I will fill you in in the most IP-friendly way possible. Ooh, we but, love that. You know, at, at Tell us most, your secrets. All of them right here. We've got the list. Um, but at the most basic level, uh, this is something that Maddie says quite often, circuits are patterned conductivity. And if you think about fabric, many of us wear things that are patterned. Obviously, it's not conductive traces that are on, on our garments, but patterning in fabric is not a new concept. So marrying those two things and understanding that if we use the right materials that will provide that conductivity in controlled ways, we can make these fabrics circuits. So that's what we do. We do that in a few ways, conductive inks being one of them. We also work with a base conductive material that we pattern using very specific processes and then, you know, kind of sew those in like a lining into a variety of garments and soft goods. When I say soft goods, this extends to things like couches, Mm. uh, car seats, mattresses, anywhere there's textiles, we seek to make those smart. So that's kind of a very high level overview of, 
of what the goal is and how the concept really works. So you've already sort of mentioned some places where this type of fabric can live. What are sort of some of the uses? Why, why is it super cool to have this type of fabric on a couch or to be able to wear it? Sure. So at Lumia, we really see a future of enchanted objects. And, you know, what does that really mean? We are driven by this vision of a screenless future where the world around you just works. So you wake up in a smart mattress that maybe vibrated to wake you up at the right time because it's tracking your stage in sleep. You walk past your closet, grab your thin jacket that will automatically heat up to the appropriate comfortable temperature when you walk outside and turn off when you get into the sweltering hot subway. And, you know, shoes that uh, track your paces, so on and so forth, you know, a world that just responds to you. And in order to make that possible, we really need to get intelligence out of these hard metal and plastic chips and into uh, the world around us. When we talk about Internet of Things, there's a lot of excitement about the Internet part, but the things themselves really need that overhaul so that we can get past the screen barriers that we, we currently have right now. So the goal at Lumia is to create that magical object future through smart textiles and and other surfaces oh my gosh it feels very jetsons yes yes right oh oh oh, i have to say this because (laughs) you said the jetsons there's a picture uh down in our home at uh the new lab in the navy yard very jetsony we we use this phrase futuro which is like future retro you know the future should be colorful happy uh interactive and you know just amazing and full of wonder so that's what we're really seeking to do make tech less cold and a lot more fun I mean, just speaking of less cold, I just wanted to say that the idea of the warming up, cooling down thing makes (laughs) me so happy. Just the whole challenge of being in the heat and then going into freezing air conditioning and vice versa. It's one of those things that you just think of as a nuisance, but to have a solution to is incredible. I mean, it changes the entire notion of dress in layers, right? (laughs) right. Exactly, Joe. Nobody wants to look like a marshmallow in the winter. It's the hardest time (laughs) to look cute. It's really difficult. I mean, beyond the the functionality, there's also a, you know, not letting function affect your style and your sense of expression and really making making our clothes more useful and beyond a statement piece. So we definitely, we really focus on function when we design use cases. I love that. So, Janet, how did you get into fashion? tech and soft circuitry. It's such an emerging field and you're kind of inventing this as you go. What kind of experiences do you draw on for this work? That's going to be fun to go through. So uh, as you (laughs) mentioned earlier, my background is in design technology and technical theater. And if you want to find some of the craftiest people in the world, you know, just go there, talk to a techie. They will find a way to make this uh, dress light up and work for 100 shows in a row. So mm-hmm. from my technical background, I definitely had exposure to these concepts early, obviously more in a theater capacity. Did a lot of work as a master electrician and a board op and was a lighting designer both in New York and in Boston. That was my formal education. When I returned to New York, I got into audio engineering because I'm just very curious about the technical side of creativity. And you know, working with all these different types of circuits, ultimately that's what this all is, larger and smaller, kind of gave me this very 360 degree view of how do we solve problems in unconventional ways, Hmm. really with the goal of, you know, expressing and adding value. So those are things that were, you know, while I was doing all these things, it was hard to see how will they all come together in a way that makes sense. But while that was going on, uh, Maddie and I have been friends for about six years. I was tracking what she was doing at then the created and really saw an opportunity to bring my background and my skill set to to Lumia. And then I joined on, learned as much as I could about fashion. I will tell you, my fashion background is not as strong as Maddie's, but I can definitely <laughs> can definitely dance when it comes to the technical end and just saw a lot a lot of ability to to really impact that with with my experience. So uh, the way I see it is learn everything and you will find a place to use it. That's for sure. I love that outlook. I think we fully agree with that on on the show. Totally. Um, well, let's talk about that technical theater background. I am a big fan of everything that you said about technical theater. I think that the old school magic tricks that are used in quick changes and set transitions are just also just 
completely applicable to so many cool futuristic things as well. So you grew up in Queens and you attended the LaGuardia High School of the Arts, which is the famous school that fame is based on, we need to mention, because Mm -hmm. fame. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So at LaGuardia, you studied lighting, sound, scenic design, and construction. Then you went to Emerson College to major in technical theater. So what kind of career did you think you would pursue at that point? Like when you were in college studying technical theater, did you think that you would go on to a a theater degree? And and what happened? You know, that's that's like the compelling question. I was studying uh, the program there is the BFA design technology program with a lighting concentration. And personally, lighting is such an amazing field, the psychological impacts. It's also highly technical, of Mm -hmm. course. And while I was at Emerson, you know, I dabbled in directing, dabbled in a wide variety of other things in that arena. And I kind of found myself saying, well, I love all this stuff. It's really hard to think I have to pick one and just do that. There's so we are familiar with that feeling. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I could continue on this road and, you know, hustle really hard and aim to be a lighting designer, but there's so many things that I want to do. Uh, and that was always the question in my mind, how far down a road do I want to go or do I want to pave a new one and take what I've what I've learned? And, mm. you know, life had it that I, I decided to pivot and take a new one. And in some ways, um, cre- you know, life created those circumstances for me. But I don't think at any point I really felt in my heart that I would do one thing. Um, mm. And I don't think it, that was bad. I'm so much happier for it. And in retrospect, it was the best thing I could have done. What took you from Emerson that led you back to New York where you became the youngest concierge in all of New York City? Is that right? Yes, yes, yes. Little known fact to anyone who's listening. If you want to find a great way to eat all of the food for free, be a concierge, (laughs) do it for a summer. You know, if you want to go, I mean, everywhere without having to drop a dollar, that's the job. Um, But, you know, as glamorous as that sounds, while I was in school, um, and this is like the the sad part of the story, uh, my father was in a car accident with my mom, and then he went on to have about three strokes in a row over a three-month period, and then they were both disabled from work, which was obviously very stressful. I come from a big family, middle child out of five girls. Wow. And I was out in Boston and, you know, things were tough financially when both parents can't work. And as we all know, New York is super expensive. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, you can burn through savings in the blink of an eye. Totally. So I was put, put in a spot where it's like, well, I could try to continue doing what I'm doing here at school or I can go back home and take care of my family. And it was never really a question in my mind what the right thing to do was. Actually, I found that the social pressure at school and the expectation that if you leave this traditional path and go home and take care of your family, you'll just fall into the stereotype and waste all your potential. And really, I was advised heavily not to do what I did, which was leave school and work as a concierge and a bunch of other odd jobs to take care of my folks. But I don't regret that at all. I think it made me really industrious and made me very resourceful and, you know, built a lot of character, of course, because I was 19 at the time. Um, And I, I don't regret that. It was, you know, I think it's one of the things that definitely shaped me uh, the most. And I learned a lot more during that experience than I think I would have had I completed my degree. Uh, no shame, you know, no, no shade over at Emerson. It's a great school, highly recommended, but it wasn't for me, um, given the circumstances that I was in, but I'm grateful for it. And my parents are fine now. They're, they're super great and healthy. And yes, awesome. that, was, that was, that was an interesting time, but I did eat a lot of good food and, you know, <laughs> managed money, like, like a boss. Is, <laughs> is, is that when you, uh, found yourself on an episode of Law and Order? Was that during that time? Oh yeah, back back yeah, that that also happened. So while I was doing, <laughs> while I was uh, working in technical theater, and I think any technical person that says they've never wanted to be on the stage may not be as honest as they should. Uh, I was always interested in in the performance end of it as well, and uh, was signed by an agent in New York when I was fourteen, and had done a few radio things and a few commercials, and I got a a, a job on Law and Order where I was a very belligerent, disrespectful sassy lady uh girl 
girlfriend to some guy who was caught up in some trouble. So that was funny because I'm the last person to mouth off to a police officer. But that was my, <laughs> but that was the role. I was like, okay, we can do this. That, Why not? That is so fantastic. I feel like Law and Order is such a rite of passage as a New York actor, you know? Like, it really it, is. It, it really, really is. is. They said that too. They're like, now you're real. You're <laughs> It's That's not incredible. getting your SAG card or getting, you know, like your first equity contract. It's getting your episode of Law and Order. Yes. That's what it's makes serious. you legit. Yeah. Oh, it really is. You better have that credit. Totally. Jobs. Well, I think, I can't imagine you being 19 as a concierge. I mean, I my idea of a concierge is that you're just getting like every crazy request at like all hours of the day. Is that That's just, right. is that true? And that you need to know like everybody yeah. and pull strings to make things happen. How do you do that at 19? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, that's it's so funny that you honed in on that concierge work is relationship management, relationship mm. management. You need to deal <laughs> and deal, be buddies with everybody at yeah. every difficult restaurant to get a reservation at. And a lot of that was, you know, putting the footwork in, going to these places after work, studying, reading every review, making sure you have the most recent version of the Zagat, and just really being on top of it. I actually have a binder that's about 200 pages deep, sorted by cuisine, price point, and location that I built over my time there. It's really something you have to seek to master. And I really developed my you know interpersonal skills. I've always been a people person, but that was just, you know, really managing all kinds of emotions, newlywed, someone who's really angry, someone who's desperate to get into this restaurant. And on the restaurant side, you know, they just want those butts in seats. So it's it was a lot of fun and I, I, I really enjoyed it. But doing it at 19 was funny because no one really knew that. So mm. I'd go to these places and they'd, they'd, you know, be very generous with the food and drink. And, you know, I wasn't going to rat on myself. So I won't name names. <laughs> but that, that was a fun time to be 19 and everyone assume you must be like 26 to be a concierge. So it worked out. It worked out for me. That's incredible. It must seem now that like there's no request that is like too hard. Because when you're you're 19, you're figuring out how to live in New York, you know, I mean, what a crash course. That's incredible. Exactly. And that's another thing, too, in terms of resourcefulness. It's like, okay, someone wants 10,000, exactly 10,000 rose petals. That number. That was a request. Yes. <laughs> okay. The tomorrow. So they want that tomorrow. So it's like, okay, we're gonna call every florist. We're gonna try to make this happen and see if they'll count it out. And if not, you'll count it out, which I did. So there's lots of funny, crazy hairbrain requests as well that you just gotta make happen and you know, make the customer happy. That's that's the job. And it was a lot of fun. And you know, I, I've got that binder. So if you ever need a dinner recommendation, <laughs> Oh, we're calling you. Oh, absolutely. I also just side point. I'm really happy to hear you say Zagat because I learned on an episode of Will and Grace that Zagat rhymes with the cat. That's how I remember it. (laughs) Zagat. So I'm sensing a theme of like scrappy resourcefulness in Mm. like at the crux of what you have learned how to do between technical theater, which is like make uh, everything happen on $12 tomorrow. Uh, Yes. And it better work. And it better work. Um, And, you know, being a startup founder, I mean, these all all have uh, a lot of themes in common. Um, So you decided to go back to school. And you focused on audio engineering rather than going back to finish technical theater. What led you to audio engineering when lighting was your focus before? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. This is the the other side of Janet's multifaceted interest. <laughs> I really love to sing. I've always loved music. It's something that I do mostly for myself, but then entertained. Maybe what I want to do is be a jazz musician. Um, a lot of that had to do with my education over at LaGuardia and being in the presence of some amazing musicians. So I was mm-hmm. like, you know what? I've got some, some blues in me. I've got some things to say. So I kind of went there thinking, well, I don't want to just go the traditional route, take a bunch of voice lessons, and then you know, not understand the mechanics behind it. So I decided to go to school for audio engineering with a thinking, well, I could do audio while I kind of work on my music slash I've always wanted to know how to do this. So I went to school for that and then found myself really interested in the technical side. Naturally, I think there's a theme here. I like the creative end and the performance end, but definitely I'm more focused on on the how. Uh, and I really got very deeply involved in that. And it was a lot of fun. And I still sing for for fun. 
in my house mostly to the St. Bernard, <laughs> but uh, I just I just wanted to learn it, and that's kind of the attitude I have about most things. If it's interesting to you, it doesn't need to make sense to anybody else while you're learning it. Just just learn it. You don't know when you'll use it. And then it came in handy when I was in St. Martin, so you know it all worked out. Well, and we should mention that you studied audio engineering at the American University of the Caribbean. Why there? What took you there? Oh, yeah. So I'll just clarify that because I understand um, why that seems that way. I actually studied here in New York over at SAE. Oh. And I went down to St. Martin and set up a interactive system with their medical mannequins. Uh, and just some context around that, they had, I think it was 13 different Sim Man, that's the brand name, medical mannequins. These mannequins have like heartbeats, lung sounds, they can cry, like perform all kinds of crazy, you know, human processes. But they were really underutilized uh, because you walk in there and you're just looking at a monitor and, you know, there's not much that medical students can do besides that. So I pitched the idea of setting up an interface between the mannequin and having actors offsite uh, talking through the mannequin and controlling all of the different uh, medical processes to kind of simulate emergency room scenarios and uh, allow the medical students to like interact with a patient. So it was actually very theatrical, but really good for the medical students to try that and really see how they work on their feet and see the, you know, the immediate feedback and results from interfacing with a patient that's having an acute experience. So that was something that I pitched to the university and said, hey, you know, my audio engineering background will be really handy here. I can set it up for you guys. I can buy the equipment. I can train all of the uh, actors that will be controlling the mannequin offsite and it was just a really fun project. I just wanted to do it. And wow. and they still they still use that program over at AUC. So it was it was really satisfying to build something and see it affect people and really improve their educational experience. Um, but that that's kind of how that audio connection is there. Okay, that wait, hold up. How did you know that a medical school had mannequins underutilized that you could then work with and even pitch this project? <laughs> Aha, because this this is the question. So while I was studying, <laughs> you got me. So while I was studying audio engineering, uh, I met a lovely man named Victor, and he was off to medical school. And he said, hey, come with me. And I said, uh, I don't go anywhere if I can't work. So, you know, it was very entertaining to think like, oh, maybe I'll move down there and just camp out on a beach and drink a lot of mimosas or whatever you drink on a beach, <laughs> daiquiris, I guess. But I was trying my to test. find a way to, to work and use my skills. Uh, so that's kind of how that happened. I got really involved at the university and said, I'm going to find a job here. And then I found a job there. And uh, I also uh, taught a painting class on the island since there was no place for anybody to do anything creative. And it was just a great way to make some money and also use my skills. And it was really nice to be able to interface with the medical community as well. And they still use that program. And the the, man, the medical mannequins are used like 300 times more than they were in the past. And they're expensive. So at least they're getting their money's worth. Um, so that's how that happened. I followed my heart and followed my man and... And lived on an island for 14 months and, and worked at the school. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you, That's you're incredible. like the queen of dropping in fascinating details as though they're no big deal. So you taught a <laughs> painting class. Have you been painting this whole time as well? I mean, like painting a flat for a theater set is one thing, but like painting a painting? Totally different. Oh, yeah, it's when when you talk when I talk about what I've done in like in in order, I realize like oh that's a lot of different stuff. But to me, in my <laughs> mind, it's like oh I was just using something I know how to do and. Maybe it's helpful to somebody else. Um, but at the medical school, it was a very interesting community. So you have these students and their spouses, and a lot of them have children. And, you know, there's really not much for the partners of medical students to do on the island besides watch their, their person study, which is uh, pretty boring. And, you know, I saw an opportunity to kind of build some community teach people a skill. I had never taught a painting class before, but I'm pretty patient. So just went to the craft store on the island, bought a ton of paints, decided that 10 bucks is a good price and we'll probably get people in the door and we'll cover my costs for the paints and just posted in a Facebook group. Hey, if you guys want to learn to paint, I'll, I'll teach you. I booked this room. Come if you want to. And it was super popular. I ended up having to do two classes, one for adults in the morning and then in the afternoon for children. And there's still this Facebook group and I'll send you the link so you can see the work of my students, which was really, really satisfying. You know, people really developed their skills over the 14 months I was there. And, you know, 
went away with with a new thing, with something that they could continue doing for themselves. So that was really, really gratifying. And it was also nice to have some cash, of course, but it was really fun to to act act as a teacher and learn how to do that and have that that patience and, and develop a process around how do you teach someone to see the right things first when you're painting. Um, so yeah, that was something I did on the island as well. Victor joked around, he's like, you have like four jobs. Like, you work more than anybody else on this island. I was like, yeah, well, I like to work. Oh I did go get to the beach every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think now Christina's point of scrappy resourcefulness needs to be a t-shirt that you wear. <laughs> because it's it's not just that. It's like the confidence that you have to just say, yes, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to build a curriculum that I've never built before, you know, and see if I can inspire people to create art or, you know, implement this program with, with, uh, in, in hospitals. It's incredible. Thanks. I really appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I think it's, and that's what I really like to do is set up structures and, you know, a process. That's a lot of fun for me. It's like, okay, we want to do this thing. How can we repeat doing this thing? And I think that really does come back from my theater background. You need to find the most efficient way to get to point why or wherever it is that you're trying to go and it needs to be repeatable by anybody so i think that training and, and thinking like how do we simplify while not sacrificing quality i bring a lot of that theater training you know outlook to process to everything i do so i'm, I'm really grateful for you know having the opportunity to learn those skills at a young age totally so speaking of structure i want to talk about this transition from the life you had before lumia and becoming COO of a startup. It feels like, you know, moving from audio engineering work and project-based work to this COO title and now a CEO title, that feels like a big shift from the outside. You know, I know that as an artist myself and someone who has worked in a number of different projects, I've often thought about and totally tried it on for size, you know, what would it be like if I go to a job that is really nine to six? And of course, it could last longer than that. But going from, you know, having my hands in different projects to this really sort of steady, you know, Monday through Friday job, putting my energy into one company or one project. Was that a big shift for you? And how did it happen? Sure. So I I guess I'll start with the how did it happen and then the second part. So yeah. as I had mentioned earlier at the in the little intersection, I've known Maddie for uh, I think now it's almost seven years, like six to seven years. We had met at a friend's, I think, birthday party, mm. just really connected because, you know, she's very creative and technical. I like to think that I'm the same. And we just kept in touch over the years as I was moving around for work and, you know, just we're always in touch. Mm-hmm. When I came back from St. Martin, well, now it's, yeah, now it's a year well, 14 months ago, some some odd time ago, I got back in touch with Maddie and let her know, hey, I'm in town. It would be great to catch up and spend some time. And I was working at that point uh, as an assistant to a film producer. And I you know, was doing that, but really thinking about what's my next move. I really enjoyed the, you know, the challenges of starting your own business or starting a new thing that I experienced out in St. Martin, you know, pitching a program to a university, really being responsible for making it happen, the training aspects of working with, you know, actors and nurses and training medical staff on these new processes, even, you know, working at a smaller capacity in the painting class. Mm -hmm. I really loved that process. So when I came back, I started thinking, you know, I want to do the same thing. I want to work at the building level and something that will give back to a lot of people. I don't want to be an employee in that traditional sense. I want to be a part of making a bigger vision. So at that time, I thought, oh, you know, I'll start my own company. And I was kind of doing a lot of reading on on what that's like and kind of educating myself as much as I can, taking tons of online classes. And I started co-working with Maddie at a coffee shop out in Brooklyn while I was working on a project that's now shelved for a later date. And, you know, <laughs> she mentioned that they were looking for a new person over at Lumia. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about fashion, but I will learn. And I do know a lot about tech. So, yeah, I'll see if, if, if it's a fit for Maddie. So I said, hey, I'd be happy to come and bring whatever skills I have to what you're doing and, and try to help you out. And, you know, she was down and I started working there and really saw a lot of opportunity to create process and, you know, find resources for a startup and what's the most efficient way to do X and who do we need for Y. And it was a really exciting place to be that I felt maximized all of my natural skills and talents and really pushed me to really dig further 
further, which is what I, I really think I'm a digger more than anything else is how do we get deeper? How do we get there? And just putting all my effort towards that. Um, and Maddie, you know, felt that I would do better in more senior role and gave me the responsibility of being COO, which was obviously for me, you know, an honor that she trusted me with that title and the responsibilities that came with it. And in that capacity, I just pushed even harder, building our supply chain domestically, talking to manufacturing partners in the States and convincing them, hey, we're the people to work with, trust me. And this is why. So it was, it was really, you know, and convincing them, kind of reminding me of my concierge days, days like, this is why you should do X. I'm going to sell this idea to you and we will do this. And, you know, really getting all of those things together. Uh, and then on the business side, really trying to look out for Maddie as much as I could and for Lumi as much as I could on, you know, what's the best deals and, you know, how can we, you know, get the value for what we're building? Because I, I really do believe that, that you should never undervalue what you have to offer. And Maddie felt that it would be a better transition for me to move into the role that I'm currently in now. So it kind of happened, I would say, really organically, mm. but I was being very scrappy and resourceful the whole time. <laughs> and, you know, Janet's tagline, scrappy and resourceful. Totally. Um, and, and it really, and, and thankfully, it, it helped us get to where we are today. Um, and in terms of the nine to five structure, the benefits of a startup is that there is some flexibility. You know, I do work remotely. I think it's two days out of the week and sometimes three because I live very far from the studio. And, you know, definitely having that window from nine to five could seem challenging, but when you're really excited about what you're doing, it's it really is no big deal. I often find myself working nine to nine or mm -hmm. nine to midnight and, you know, maybe should work nine to five a little more than I do, but, <laughs> you know, I, I there's just so much stuff to do that it's it feels very dynamic. I, I'm, I'm pretty happy there. Mm, that's awesome. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. 
His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. You're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist with Christina Wallace and Kate Scott Campbell. So, you know, our show is called The Limit Does Not Exist. So one of the questions we like to ask everyone is when or where have you felt limited in your career and how did you overcome it? Hmm. I would say I felt pretty limited, funnily enough, in technical theater while studying that, doing like a lot of master electrician work. That you know, and I hate to say that, you know, the theater industry on the technical side is definitely a boys club, but it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely felt that, you know, I needed to be not twice as good, but seven times as good as a designer, as an electrician, as a board op uh, to even be considered for certain things. And that was definitely a challenge that I looked in the face readily and happily. But it was definitely, you know, it's really tough to deal with that kind of structural um I guess I would say inability to recognize merit as fast as you should. So that was that was tough while I was in that in that industry to really see like I could be really really good, but Gary might get it anyway. Mm. And you know, but that doesn't stop you from doing what you need to. I would definitely say that that was one area that I felt limited um, when I was working as a concierge. As great as that was from a social point of view, I really love people. I really love helping people. And, you know, I like to say that my leadership style is definitely service oriented. How can I get you what you need the way you need it? And how can everybody win? I did feel that it wasn't technically challenging enough for me. And, you know, it was a very comfortable lifestyle, but didn't push my mental limits as much as I really wanted it to. So I also felt limited there, but grateful for everything I learned in both of those environments. It's really cool, Janet, to hear you talk about the fact that you have been in situations where you feel like I'm not being challenged enough. You know, I know that I'm capable of more than this. Something that we've talked about on the show before is this idea that's pretty well known now, right? This idea of imposter syndrome of "Mm, I'm not the person who should be doing this because I don't know enough, you know, or someone else is probably better equipped than me at that. It seems like you don't suffer from that. And that's so inspiring. And I'm wondering, why is that? Does it come down to how you were raised? Have you ever felt like I'm an imposter and you've just overcome it? Or do you really, you know, approach a situation with I can totally figure this out and be the gal for this? 
Oh, that's such a great question because yes and and also no. Um, the <laughs> imposter syndrome thing, I think I would say I felt most imposter mode. Um, that was November of last year. I was speaking in D.C. and at the Washington at the D.C. Press Club, where I was talking about like the importance of STEAM education mm. with you know Under Armour VPs, like tons of policy people. It was just I was sitting up there on that panel with my presentation that I prepared the week before, thinking I'm I'm in D.C. I'm going to meet a senator after this. What like, is this? is this me? What's going on? That was really the first imposter syndrome moment for me. And I think before that, I was just so focused on, I have to do this. I have to do it well. You know, you know, I'm in this role, like I cannot fail. Like it was less, can I do it? And more so I better do it. Mm. But then when I had this moment to like kind of pause and think, I definitely felt like, whoa, am I the person for the job? But I do think in terms of how I was raised, my mom, you know, she moved here when she was 20. And, you know, with all of my sisters, she was, you know, always said to us, don't let anybody else tell you no. Don't allow that, you know, as you grow up. Don't let anyone tell you, you can't do this. You're not smart enough. You're not this. If you feel a no inside, go make that a yes first. And I think I really took that to heart and, and it kind of helped me push past that imposter syndrome feeling that I was feeling at the end of last year. Like, no, you know what? No one's telling me no. And I need to tell myself yes and make sure that, I, I do what I was put here to do. Um, so, yes, I definitely had those those moments, but I really do feel, especially from that service angle, you know, I have so much faith in Maddie's vision and she's trusting me to push it forward and failing is not an option. So I have to do everything I can to make sure that we get there and I can do it, even if I'm scared sometimes. That's incredible. <sighs> Janet, you have so many skills and such a orientation toward learning and toward hustling and and scrappiness to figure it out if you don't know it already. And you're pretty early in your career. I mean, you're still in your 20s, right? So (laughs) what's a dream project or collaboration like, you know, dream big? What's something that you want to get to before you die? Ooh, the real question. You got me. All right. Well, you know, on the on the, the first in the immediate is making Lumia a multi-billion dollar company. That's that's like my it. Um, you know, immediate goal. You know, we will power the future. It's like, yeah, the, the crazy thing I want to do right now, Target, make this company huge and everything that you wear be powered by our amazing circuits. Beyond Lumia, which right now is getting 170% of all of my resources in terms of energy. (laughs) I really think that there's a unique opportunity. Um, I guess to simplify it, I'd love to have created like a media conglomerate or empire in a way where we really have meaningful art that affects people. It's something that I, I say to people close in my life, you know, music, TV, those are the things that you allow yourself to be hypnotized by. And I really do feel in chasing ratings and, you know, looking for what will sell, we've really lost that, you know, on the corporate level, that that ability to filter for, you know, meaning. And I would love to create an alternative for that, to create really meaningful media, really great radio, really great TV, which is a huge undertaking to be like the next, you know, Sony or 20th Century Fox or ABC or Disney Obviously, that's massive, but I would love to really be the 21st century version of, you know, the next giant and really make meaningful art in a lot of different ways. That's like a very ambitious business goal, but it's there and I'm building the structure on the back end now in terms of how I might go about doing that. But I think it's important. We really need to bring quality and purpose, not just dollars and ratings to what we what we feed people, because, you know, the arts is food for the soul and we're eating a lot of junk food. That's kind of how I feel and and we see it play out politically and I really want to change that. Um, So that's something that I would love to do before I I return to the earth. That's so (laughs) awesome. How do you stay inspired? What do you take in? Do you like to go on long walks to museums? Is there a particular show or type of media that inspires you? How do you fill up your well? 
That's a really great question. Uh, I will say I'm one of those people that will listen to one song like a thousand times, much to the pain and suffering of my loved ones. Oh, my gosh. Um, me so too. I, you know, <laughs> you're just like, oh, I listened to the same 10 songs for the last 10 years. But, you know, there's definitely like I've got a few playlists that I, I listen to and I'm at the gym. But, you know, honestly, people are very inspiring to me. I love living in New York. I'm from here. And I definitely do think it affects that. Yeah, walking down the street, but honestly, if I need to clear my mind or reset, I just take the subway. And I just oh. look at people and think about their story. It's like, okay, there's a lady in scrubs. Is she a nurse? Is she a doctor? Is she a PA? And how, how long was her shift? And does she have children? And you know, where is she going? Just look at people and wonder about how we got to share this moment in this train car. And if we think about it, the odds of that are pretty crazy. So for me, <laughs> the train ride is very humbling and kind of really resets my focus and, you know, like the magic of being. So I really love people. And living in a city like New York, I, I generally feel pretty full. I love that. I Living in Los Angeles, I miss the subway so much. We have a metro in L.A. It's not the same thing. But it's I, not. It's not. But it's it, nice. Nothing is like the subway. I, I agree with you. It's like I remember there was a week in my life living in New York where every day I got on the subway, I saw something else that literally made my jaw drop. It was in one week. And I was just like, God, you know, <laughs> like, I, I just I, I'm just stumbling upon things that are astonishing me. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's like a cross section of, you know, being human, you know, mm. at every age. I love that. so awesome. <laughs> I am um, sort of a, like a little bummed that they've put uh, cell phone service in the subway now. Oh, because they have? the subway used oh. to be, yeah. The subway used to be my one, like, you know, 20 or 30 minute, whatever that length of time was that I was underground. Mm. That, like, occasionally I would listen to music, but mostly I would just, like, sit and observe. Mm. And yeah. it mm. you know, it was just my, like, quiet time yeah. and now now there's cell phone service so now i can check you know I, only oh. in the stations but i can still check and mm-hmm. read and whatever and it's just it's taken away my quiet time i just need to put my phone on airplane mode i think but to your point i, I love your point of like what are the odds of me and this person being uh in this <laughs> train car i used to try to work out the mathematics of how to calculate the odds particularly when i would run into people i knew yes um, well that's the thing like in the you same know few and days. it's like you know yeah. people overestimate the odds of things where you're like, oh my God, that's crazy. That's one in a bazillion. And you're like, well, think about how many people you know. And I wasn't exactly planning to meet this person today. So if we take out the randomness of like, I could have run into anybody I know at any day this week and it would have felt crazy, right? So you can you can start like cutting it down a little bit of your odds. But I tried to like calculate what that is. It's sort of like when I run long races, I'm trying to calculate my, my rate of change to meet certain mile uh, <laughs> goals. And just like the act of doing mathematics in motion, uh, uh, somehow centers me. I don't know how we got on that, but the subway. Oh, oh I... this is fascinating, by the way. Like, <laughs> let's talk about that. Hang on. What did you conclude? Because I feel the same way. I also have this rule. Like, if I bump into somebody that I haven't seen in a while, but I know them, in my mind, it's like, okay, we have to be friends. Like, you are put here. So I'm now going to message you on Facebook. It actually happened to me and Maddie when I was back in town from being somewhere. This was before we were working together. We bumped into each other on 23rd and 6th. And I, like, freaked out. I was like, oh, my God. You're, like, never in New York. And I'm never here either. We have to really stay in touch. And she was like, okay, yeah. And then, you know, now we're here. So I definitely so do think that's magic. Yeah. Yeah. My rule is, oh, now we have to be friends. You don't have a choice. I, I'm messaging you now. <laughs> yeah. I, I would believe that, except there was one week for me that I ran into like four four days in a row. I ran into a guy that I had at one point gone on like an OkCupid date or a setup <laughs> or like we had sort of tried to kind of make out once and I didn't go anywhere. And it was four <laughs> days in a row and I literally had not seen these guys. And this is from like when I first moved to New York 11 years ago and I was like seriously what is in the water yeah. are like, <laughs> you know. did someone post something somewhere being like Christina's happy and in love you should just oh I do think up. I do think that's a mathematical <laughs> uh totally unproven by me rule of like I just remember being in the early stages of a relationship and like I would feel like the exes would come out of the woodwork they do. It's an energy no. sniffing out thing. <laughs> like I, I mean, at one guide. point, one of them was on a skateboard.
skateboard skating past me on no. Wall Street. I was like, this makes no sense. You live on the Upper West Side. I live in Brooklyn. Neither of us work on Wall Street. Why are you here right now? That's that is incredible. so true. I, I mean, I just have to co-sign all of this because, yes, absolutely. They come out of nowhere. It's like they can smell it. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. She's unavailable. Mm-hmm. We'll just skate on by. It's true. And Energy add is an powerful. aura of weird to the day. Just seriously, an aura of weird. Oh that is the, the theme of there. Totally. Okay. So one last big picture question, and then it might be time for the lightning round. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about a technology that you are absolutely just freaking excited about and one that completely terrifies you. Ah, uh, they're usually one in the same. Let's see. Ooh, so true. What? Such a good point. You know? You know, like amazing innovations, you're just like, oh, someone's going to find the dark side of that so fast. <laughs> but, um, well, I think what UBeam is doing is amazing. Long story short, I, and if you know about UBeam, I don't. I will. Meredith is an awesome founder. Yes, Meredith Perry. Um, so UBeam, like simply put, they can. Uh, kind of charge things up to a distance of 15 feet away uh, through ultrasound, you know, really channeling down ultrasound and, you know, powering that device. But the cool thing about their technology is that it can, you know, really differentiate and locate depending on what's in the field. Um, So if you put like a deck of cards in the field of U-Beam, it's not going to try to charge your deck of cards. But if you put your phone there, it will be able to recognize that through some kind of mapping. I mean, I have no idea how this works. It's like some magical stuff. But if you think about it it's like wow imagine a cord-free world where you know our walls or everything else and it's you know very safe based off of what you know my understanding from what i've read you know everything just is constantly you know being self-powered like how the heart pumps your blood and powers you know you don't need to plug yourself in you know it's, to me it's it felt like a really interesting organic parallel to what humans do to run uh, and you know to, to to exist like but in the technical space in the digital space so to me it's totally crazy that there's this device out there that can just send energy across space and time know that what's in your hand needs that charge and then interact with that like that is nuts and the implications are really really amazing um so go meredith for just being a boss with the sauce or with the ultrasound, I guess. Um, but <laughs> still very cool. Um, so I love that. Uh, to be honest with you, in terms of like utter fear uh, with technology, this Internet of Things thing, it's like, uh, I don't know if I want everything to be, you know, able to listen or watch me or talk to all my other stuff because it's less about the technology and more about who has access, who has control. Yep. I think security is is a big one. So mm-hmm. as we make this world more connected and more interdependent as it should be, I mean, nature works that way. We mm-hmm. really need to make sure that the powers that be have that responsible approach to it, which is pretty tough to do. So it's less about the technology that terrifies me and more about the ethics of who's in the control room and that's something that I think as we innovate, it might be worthwhile deciding, you know what, maybe we don't release this now because we know it's going to get in the wrong hands. Like that self-regulation in the tech space, I think, is pretty important. And I don't know if it happens as much as it maybe should. Mm-hmm. But these are the opinions of a Janet, you know. <laughs> well, so I am completely on on uh, Team Janet on this. Um Team Janet. <laughs> yeah, right? It, the idea of the the entire ethos of like move fast and break things, put out a minimum viable product, and then we'll just iterate. Like that works for individual products and companies, but it doesn't work for an ecosystem. And I no, am really doesn't. terrified of how – I mean I am so – anti-internet of things the idea that having like my front door be locked and unlocked via the internet no, uh, please. And, mm. right like even the the wikileaks thing that was released today on the cia uh the thousands TV. of documents yes and a samsung tv that could be turned on remotely to listen and record ambient noise and then like sent back i'm just you know, I've got an Alexa. She tells me the weather. We play Jeopardy. Uh, and Yay! occasionally she'll put on Adele because I only listen to one thing. But uh, <laughs> I, I have to be honest. The idea, I, like, I'm convinced, uh, not to get all doomsday here, but I'm going to. Oh, please do. I, I do that I'm, regularly. <laughs> I'm convinced that World War Three is not going to be nuclear. It's going to be 
someone turning off the internet. Oh, yeah. Our oh, cars, yeah. our front doors. Like, we don't know how to call anyone. I don't have a map. It might be my heaven, be, uh, though. Like, I would just, like, read books at home. <laughs> like, I don't yeah, know how to get off. Outside. <laughs> I could get off the island of Manhattan, but then where will I go? I, I am no north from south. I don't know how to get to Canada. I don't have... Ah, I, it actually mm, legit... Mm-hmm. I, I want to have, like, a go bag with, like, a paper map that gets me from Manhattan to Canada. Yeah, oh, that's the thing. <laughs> or in LA, they used to have the Thomas Guide. When people would just drive around and and use the Thomas, Thomas Guide. Guide. Yeah, the Thomas Guide. It was this book. Everyone who <laughs> Steve, our producer, was like, people don't know the Thomas Guide. Yeah, it was like in the eighties and nineties. My dad had one in San Francisco, uh, but it was just this big book that you would use. You know, before GPS happened, and it had like all oh. of the pages of the streets. But you know, people are doing this with you know uh, teaching kids. There's these now camps where you're just learning how to just make stuff and get out there and get outdoors. Maybe we all just need to, you know, go on expeditions more and keep those muscles (laughs) strong. That's exactly, you know, you just said what I was thinking. You know, I think uh, I used to work in a, in a dark room for photos and, you know, the advent of digital, everybody likes to, you know, not really understand what the dodging tool was intended for in Photoshop. (laughs) I think that, you know, or contrast, like why does that actually, why is it a thing? I think it's really important as we encourage like STEM education that people understand what this innovated off of, because we're really crippling people's ability to problem solve. If you don't understand the mechanics of how the thing actually works. Mm. So we have these very, you know, making things easier really does not make you smarter. We already know that's actually the opposite. So, you know, I agree with you. I think everybody should know how to read a map. It'd be great if you knew what was a poisonous berry. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, just because, yeah, if somebody just unplugs the internet, we're kind of in a dangerous spot, you guys. Oh and my I gosh, think there's totally. definitely, a, at least in the West, not that I'm from anywhere else, but in the West, there's just, you know, let's move forward, let's move forward. But we really mm-hmm. kind of as a society need to make sure we're ready for what what tools we're giving ourselves. Because you wouldn't give a three-year-old, like someone with the emotional maturity of a three-year-old, a loaded gun, right? Because they're not ready for the responsibility of this tool. And I think uh-huh. technology mm-hmm. can be weaponized in the same way. Or a and Twitter if, account. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, that's, that's exactly yeah. what I mean. You know, we yeah. need to make sure that we're not building tools that, and I think that's where, you know, technologists really need to be responsible. You may build this amazing tool, but you kind of have to take a litmus of where are, where is society? Are they ready for this thing? Mm-hmm. And I, I wish that happened more often than it does. And, and, and it doesn't, but it should. I, mm-hmm. I would like to see us have a national unplugging day, which is not about meditation. It's about um, like a fire drill. It's a practice <laughs> for having the internet go down. I would like us to just try this as a nation. Ooh. One day a year, we're like, okay, tomorrow, no internet. How do you do you? Yeah, and mm. like practice it as a family. You can debrief at the end of the day. Uh, I think this would be, you know, how they had practice drills for nuclear bombs mm. in the, I don't know, mm-hmm. the 60s, 80s, whenever. I don't know when the Cold War was. Uh, I'm joking. 80s. I do know when the mm-hmm. Cold War was. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I think we should have a day without internet. Uh, drills. Well, that would I, be so good for the environment too. Just to throw yes. that in there, if we actually <laughs> unplug oh, from stuff. Totally. And speaking of the environment and poisonous berries, I'm just going to share a, a camp adage, which is about poison <laughs> oak. If it's hairy, it's a berry. If it's three, let it be. You guys, that's right. If there's three oh. leaves, it's poisonous. That's what we were taught oh, in cool. camp. You uh, see? Look at that. <laughs> Didn't know that. It sticks with you. Something new. I'm sorry. I just got caught up on if it's hairy, it's berry. <laughs> <laughs> there are other interpretations. Uh, of- <laughs> so true. That is a slippery I'm slope to inappropriate land. I'm live. I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I'm glad that you took it because it was now I'm waiting. Just questioning Woo! everything that I was taught as a child, which I mean, I've done before. Have, it's not that this is the first time I'm doing this. I have humor of like a 14 year old boy, so we're just going to let that lie. Uh, it's, time it's time to go the yes, to the lightning round. I'm so I'm so excited, nervous, Christina. I, know. Uh, I think we're overselling works. it. So here's how no, the lightning round never. goes. 
we're going to ask you five questions that are, you know, marginally silly slash not to be taken too seriously. And you just give us your first response. Oh, God. Oh, God. You don't okay. have to think too much about it. And we're going to do our best not to ask follow-up questions. Yes. This is putting <sighs> your scrappy resourcefulness to the test, yep. Janet. Yep. FYI, <laughs> I have never been questioned like that. Like, say the first thing off your mind. Like, I'm about to learn about myself. I'm so scared. What is, what is there? Let's see what happens. Kate, why don't you pick us up? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, question one. What are you reading right now? Getting to Yes. And uh, How to Not Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. I'm reading those two books. Fantastic recommendations. Absolutely. Uh, Here we go. Question two. What is the best kept secret in New York? Kind of sad I'm telling you guys, but because I love y'all. Indochine, (laughs) French Vietnamese, if you want the best meal of your life, you're welcome. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh, you are killing the lightning round. I'm just going to tell you, you Janet. Really are. Team Janet really are. for the win. Okay, question number three. Other than sound design, technology, fashion, theater, painting, finding 10,000 rose petals in, in 24 hours, <laughs> what else is in your Venn diagram? By the way, we know that there's already a lot of things in your Venn diagram, so you're allowed to say nothing, but we suspect that there's probably something else, another interest in there that may not be readily apparent. Swing dancing. Ooh. Ooh, I can cut a rug. Oh my yes. gosh. I, That's the thing to do. I love it. Again, <laughs> nailing the lightning round. Amazing. Okay, illegal follow-up question. Uh, <laughs> Where do you go swing dancing in New York? You should be dancing has the most bomb uh, swing social every Thursday, Frim Fram. All right, it's 33rd Street, 8th Avenue on the fourth floor. And if you want to dance with all the cool cats, that's where you go. And Swing 46 is also another cool spot. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. We are taking a Limit Does Not Exist swing dancing road trip when I'm in New York next. (laughs) By road trip, I mean subway trip. I'm going to hold you to it. Janet, you're coming with us. Okay, it's happening. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, Oh, Christina, you're up next. I think so. Okay. This is a uh, either or, which do you prefer or think is awesome or I don't know. Pick one. Uh, (laughs) Snapchat spectacles or Google contact lens. Oh, my God. Um, uh, uh, Google contact lenses? Because I, I, I don't really snap very well, I guess. <laughs> great answer. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, great, great reason to have a preference. Okay, last question. Shout out for a woman who's doing awesome things in wearable tech. Oh, there's a lot of people. Um, Shout out to a woman doing awesome it, things. We know this is hard to pick one. Maybe just a, just a woman you want to give a little extra hug to uh, who may be a little under the radar. Okay. Allison Lewis, Switch Embassy. Amazing, amazing, amazing woman who's been really doing a lot of work in the space for a while. So Allison Lewis, good people. You killed the lightning round. I have to say, that, that is probably have, like yep. a new level of lightning round that just happened. I'm, I'm very yeah, maybe the fastest high. we've ever done it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. Oh, I'm proud of myself. I can lightning round. I just Hashtag. learned something. This never happened. So I'm super excited. Scrappy resourcefulness for the win. I love it. Amazing, <laughs> Janet. Thank you thank so you much. So much for being oh. on our episode tonight. This was so much fun. So it really fun. was. Thanks for having me. It was great. I, I was really going <laughs> to talk about uh, my funny life. So thank you. Funny, impressive, inspiring, all the things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and above all, scrappy. <laughs> yes. I am going to make a t-shirt, you guys. You this is now a thing. must. You must take a picture of yourself well, in it and send it to us. You know the best place to make your own fashion, bow and drape. Ooh. Oh, yeah. They do do really fun uh, phrases on clothes. I love it. But I want to see like an LED version of your scrappy resourcefulness. Oh, <laughs> I can see that too. You could make I a see- whole line. Yeah. I see a future fashion line for you. Lumia quarter form. Scrappy. Excited. Yeah, scrappy. Yeah. Bye, Janet. <laughs> Thank you so much, Janet. Have a great night. Thank you too. Take care. Bye. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Stephanie J. Block. And I'm Mary Lee Fairbanks. And we host Stages Podcast. Binge close to 100 episodes. Hear the inside stories from backstage and behind the scenes as we go beyond the resume and into the heart of creativity and what it really takes to be in the business of show business. Don't miss our chats with this season's Tony nominees. If you love theater and entertainment, you are going to love Stages Podcast. Subscribe to Stages Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit us at stagespodcast.net. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.